Welcome to Pitch Deck Series 5, where we'll be having bite-sized conversations with established investors in early-stage startups. Looking to provide you with great nuggets of information when raising or considering raising seed capital. Pitch Deck is supported by Trumpet. If you work in sales or marketing and are tired of spending hours a week creating sales decks, then Trumpet is for you. Design personalized, interactive and trackable mini sites in a few clicks. Stand out from the crowd whilst also giving your customers a seamless experience from pitch to onboarding. To find out more, visit www.sendtrumpet.com. That's sendtrumpet.com and join the best in brass. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Pietro Invenuti into our pitch studio today. Pietro is an investor at Stride, a London-based venture capital firm investing first checks at the pre-seed stage alongside a team of superstars like Fred Destin, Cleo Sham and Gabby Carhain. Before joining Stride, Pietro entered the startup world five years ago through The Family, an accelerator where he spent most of his time helping founders raise money from top angel investors and VCs. He has also made over 20 angel investments himself. So Pietro, a firm favorite of Pitch Deck, delighted to have you back again. <laughs> hey, Nick, great to be here. And it's a pleasure as usual. So let's dive straight into it. So firstly, I just want to tackle certain verticals. So are there any verticals that Stride in the sort of pre-seed arena are super excited by? And do those differ from you as an angel investor? Absolutely. So as, as I was telling you last time I was on at Stride, we're very proudly anti-thematic. So we try and not to predict themes as they happen, but just base our you know conversations and decisions on founders first and then follow the founders when it comes to learning about new spaces and identifying green opportunities. This said, I obviously, you know, as an individual have my favorite areas of interest. One that I've been spending a lot of time on recently is the no-code and low-code space, where I'm seeing a ton of incredible founders dedicate their energies to. And a lot of the applications that I'm seeing are allowing people who, you know, until a few years ago would have never been able to launch their business to do that literally in minutes. And I'm a very big fan. Nice. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of uh, no-code stuff at the moment, which yeah, is super exciting. I think that vertical is only going to grow. So as we mentioned, you're both angel and VC. So I think it's super interesting to look at the approach. So, you know, when you're seeing a deck um, or speaking to a founder as an angel versus a VC, do you have a different hat on? Is, is the approach similar? And on top of that, do you think founders should actually change their behavior depending on who they're pitching to? Nice. I actually love this question. So for context, yes. When I was at the family, I was seeing so many great founders and I was helping them raising these rounds, you know, anywhere from pre-seed to series A. And so at some point I started thinking, why do I not start leveraging all of the, you know, insider info that I have about the founders and just my relationship with them uh, to get even closer to their journeys. So I started doing these very small angel investments, which to this day I continue doing. Uh, obviously, since I'm at Stride, everything that is in Europe, I look at from a Stride lens and then 
sometimes very passively, I still get friends of mine sending me opportunities outside of Europe where I still sometimes angel invest. And to answer your question, it's actually completely different how I approach looking at a company as an angel versus as a VC. Because as a VC, you're obviously responsible for the money that you're investing and it's not your money, right? So it's money from uh, institutions, it's money from other individuals, family offices that expect you to take a very measured decision for every single investment, which makes sense, right? Because you're, you're investing their money. And so when I look at investments with Stride, I always have to ask myself, is this individual investment in itself going to be able to return our entire fund? And so if you look at an investment of 1 million, for instance, in a company uh, valued at 10 million, it means that to be able to return my whole 100 million fund, it needs to get a crazy multiple, which obviously doesn't happen every day. Whereas when I look at companies as an angel, I sometimes make decisions that are way less rational than that. I don't even think about the multiple that I can get. I just think about, is this a founder that no matter what, maybe will change completely what they're doing today into something else, but I still want to work with them? Or is this a space where no matter what will happen, I just want to learn as much as I can in, and do I want to get involved in this space early? And so in that case, maybe I'll write a small angel check to be part of this wave or to be part of this founder's journey. So it's completely different approaches. And in terms of how founders should tailor, I guess, their pitch or story, depending on who they're speaking with, I think when it comes to VCs, VCs really need this reassurance that you as a founder are extremely ambitious. You want to go all the way in building category-defining companies that could one day and hopefully will one day exit for, let's say, hundreds of millions, if not tens of billions. Whereas when you speak to angels, as much as with VCs, the same still applies. I think the personal aspect of things is much more important. Getting the angel excited about you as an individual, your personal story. Why are you building this? Why would you want the angels to be by your side? Making it almost, you know, if you have one hour meeting with an angel, making the session almost more about you as an individual or as a founding team, what drives you and why you will create something impactful in the future, as opposed to how does your product work? How are your financials looking or forecasts uh, and things that perhaps to some VCs, although not all, you may want to show and, and uh, expose. Yeah, I think that's yeah an awesome, awesome answer. Some great insight for people listening. And I suppose at the end of the day, you know, as an angel investor myself, when you're looking at returns, you know, angel investors are very happy if they can 10x or 20x their money. So actually, the actual end product that an angel might be looking for, you can get that 10x or 20x actually with like a a sub 100 million outcome where a VC wouldn't get the outcome they want. It needs to be a lot bigger. Exactly. I've never asked a VC this question. So, you know, every VC says the same thing. So we want to be able to pay back our whole fund. I wonder, is there a case that you making sort of bets that, you know, you don't have to find those superstars that are going to, let's say, IPO, but actually, you know, if, if you get, say, 10 wins of 
a hundred million, which are easier to predict than, you know, those billion dollar businesses. Is that another tact that, you know, VCs could or should possibly look out rather than looking for that one big rock star that's going to pay back all the other failures? I, I find that question really interesting. And there are so many approaches that work out there. You know, there's firms like Kima Ventures, for instance, which invests into a hundred companies every single year. And with those 100 companies, they invest always the same check, which is normally 150,000 euros, if I remember well. And the idea there is that they're indexing the market. If the startup market does well and they manage to get into some of the best cap tables and invest into fantastic founders, they'll perform extremely well. And then there's founder, uh, and then there's funds like Stride, where we try to have this more artesian approach as small batch investors where we aim for a whole fund, so an entire fund that normally lasts for a couple of years in terms of investment cycle, we look to deploy that into approximately 25 companies tops, which means that, as we were saying before, every single company needs to be able to return the fund. Now, there's approaches in the middle. I've seen companies like Tiny in the US where they still invest into tech companies with the idea of hopefully generating fantastic returns, but it's much more focused on sustainability and profitability as opposed to going all the way to, you know, billion dollar scale returns. And so in that case, you're very happy with a 5x or a 10x or a 15x return as opposed to having a 100x multiple, which is what some VCs like us in many cases want to see. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Thanks for answering that. And also while we're still on the investing side, so I see a lot of founders at sort of pre-seed stage who have a lot of, you know, let's call them follower investor commitments. So which means, you know, they're waiting for a lead. And then once you get that lead, they'll follow, but then struggle to find the actual leads. They've got all these angels waiting. Do you have any tips for that scenario? Yes, I see this scenario almost every day. And it makes me a bit sad for the ecosystem, which means there are so many investors who want to see someone else commit first before they actually pull the trigger, uh, which, you know, makes sense for some angels who maybe don't have time to do their own due diligence. But I see this situation literally every day. A founder is raising their pre-seed round. They already have soft commitments of maybe 200,000 pounds, but they need a lead investor to be able to even just get that money from the, from those 200,000 pounds. And so what I normally advise founders at that stage, especially when you're raising your very first round, is to not even frame it as a round, but to do what Paul Graham at Y Combinator calls high-resolution fundraising, which is what, like if you need, let's say, 400,000 pounds or 500,000 pounds or 1 million, initially, don't even think of it as a single round of 1 million. Think of it more as, I want to get 1 million and that's going to help me hire people. It's going to help me build my tech platform and it's going to help me to get to the next level. To do that, I start speaking to fantastic angel investors and micro VCs and small funds. And as soon as they're engaged, I start raising from them with, you know, convertible notes or safes are very popular these days, securities that are not equity just yet but where I can set a price, which, you know, today could be, for instance, based on the stage of your company, it could be 4 million or 5 million post money valuation. And then, so, and, and obviously I will give them a discount because they're the first investors committing and they're showing 
a lot of courage to do so. And so you'll discount their the valuation and, and give them, let's say, like a 10 or 15% discount on, on that security. Once that's done, you can finally already hire maybe like your first developer. And that gives you confidence to talk to the second micro founder, the second angel who will commit again. And once you get that commitment, you keep raising at slightly higher valuations every time. Uh, so that by the time you already raised 1 million, you almost didn't realize you blink and you're like, oh, wow, I actually have 1 million here. And you didn't have to do it in the form of, oh, there's this big round that needs to happen. And I have to wait for every single, you know, I have to let every single investor wait before I have the big lead. In some cases, when it comes to those very early rounds, you don't even need a lead. Obviously, you know, some investors will come in maybe with like 100,000 or 200,000 checks or even 500,000 checks, which would make them a lead technically, but you don't need to frame it that way. And you can just make the process smoother and easier by raising in pieces. Yeah, I love that. So for anyone listening, if you just want to dig a bit deeper, if you Google SAFE, which is S-A-F-E or A-S-A, both very similar mechanisms, if you Google those, you'll be able to dig a bit deeper onto what uh, Pietro is saying. And linked to that, do you think founders should optimize for check size when they're speaking to angels? I love this question too, because I see a lot of situations these days where founders try to optimize a bit too much for the ticket size that uh, a particular angel could invest, when actually something that I've seen in my experience with portfolio companies is that in many cases, the angels with the smallest checks were the ones who ended up driving most value, maybe because those small checks for them still represented a very big chunk of their cash and what they could invest uh, at that point in time. And also, if you want to take money from amazing operators, maybe in your industry, maybe in a startup that is just a couple of rounds later stage than yours, but who would be fantastic additions to your cap table, they don't have as much liquidity as a serial angel investor uh, or a massive family office may have, but they have the industry knowledge, they have the grit. And what I think is once someone invests in your company, no matter whether they invest 200 pounds or 100,000 pounds, they want you to win. And some people will do anything to see you win. Uh, and it doesn't really matter about how much money they put. And, and that's obviously my personal opinion. And some founders argue, yeah, but you know, there's a big cost uh, when it comes to the legals, onboarding these small angels and small checks. And there's a lot of admin that comes to it when you need signatures for the next round. Well, while that's true, there's a lot of mechanisms in place these days that make it much easier. Uh, for instance, AngelList um, just started these RUVs. I think it's called, which stands for roll-up vehicles, where they make it extremely easy for you uh, in one transaction to have a lot of angels under the same line in your cap table, which I think is going to be a game changer for, for the ecosystem and is going to allow all of these fantastic operators and people who want to have skin in the game in startups, but who cannot really do it yet. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And yeah, as an angel investor myself, not often the biggest angel on the cap table, I know that I personally give my all to, to every startup. So I totally agree. And, and, you know, for founders listening, I'd also say link to that, like, don't be afraid to ask the angel what they can bring to the table and how 
how involved they want to be. Like you, you're also quizzing the angel whether they're suitable. Um, so never, never be afraid to ask the angel those questions. So I haven't got too much time left, but I just want to dig quickly into the pitches themselves. So I'm going to ask a few left field questions here rather than some obvious ones. So if, if someone's going to sit down with you for a pitch meeting, you've seen their deck, you like it. What are your favorite questions to ask founders during pitch meetings? What can they expect from a Pietro grilling? <laughs> okay, so I normally tend to ask very personal questions, but since we already I've already been on your podcast before, this time I will I will tell you about my final question, which is the question that I ask at the end of every single pitch meeting that I have, and it's always the same, which is what's a question that I've not asked you yet about your business, but that I really should have. So it's an it's a very open question that helps me see how the founders think because after you know like a 45 minute conversation with founders we'll have spoken about a ton of things their business the personal aspirations of the founders how they think about team building and blah 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 however it's never the whole thing it's never everything that the founders wanted you to retain from that conversation there's always something that maybe i didn't ask them or just didn't come up looking at the deck or something like that and so asking that question helps me help the founders to actually bring that up. And sometimes it brings the conversation in directions that I would have never imagined. Uh, and it makes for really fun conversations. Does, does it change every time or, or is there a sort of, it, it, in that question, is there an answer or a question they ask you that you love to see or does it change so often? So it changes every time. So the most fun one that I had was when a solo founder asked me, why are we going to succeed? Like the, the question that he, that, he, that he had was, why are you going to succeed even if you're a solo founder? And then his answer to that was very detailed, very well thought through. And it made me so excited about backing the company, despite the fact that we're a solo founder. Yeah, that's actually a really good question because that's sort of just throwing up one of the sort of obstacles that you might have taken away and sort of addressing it head on. So yeah, I like exactly. that. Are there any sort of non-obvious tips for founders you have during pitch meetings? Yes, I do. And they also relate to the uh, final stage of the pitch meetings, which is uh, just before, before closing the, the Zoom call or leaving the real life meeting, which is at the very end, what I... Really, so one, once a founder at the end of a meeting asked me, can you pitch my company back to me? So what would you, how would you describe my company to your team when you're going to present it on Monday? And I love that because it allowed them to understand very clearly whether I got it uh, and how much I bought into their mission and vision and how excited I was while telling their story back to them. And I think it's a really good test that every founder should do at the end of a meeting. Yeah, I've not heard that before. And I think that is awesome because, yeah, you know, having raised money myself and being an angel investor, you are relying on someone else. It's like sales. You know, you're relying on someone else to then sell it internally in, in their company. And if they, if they don't understand what you're, what you're getting at, you probably won't get that cash or you won't get that sale. So um, I think that's that's awesome question. And linked to that, you know, you, you, you know, I know you and you're a very nice guy, but how, 
you know, how confident should founders be to sort of ask these types of questions to, to VCs, almost like putting the card on their table? You know, sh- should they just feel supremely confident to, to sort of push back <laughs> and, and ask these questions to VCs? Yeah, so I never thought of that. But my answer would definitely be yes, because if a VC gets uh, strange about a question like that or angry or anything like that, it's a perfect sign for you that you shouldn't go with them anyway, because it's a perfectly fair question to ask. You just want to understand what's your understanding of my business. And obviously, Mm -hmm. you can use lighter versions of it, which could be, so yeah, how would you talk about us to a friend? Uh, or you don't necessarily have to put them on the spot. Uh, but I think it's, it, it, it's still a good test in every sense. Yeah. And, 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 and as you say, you're almost interviewing the VC as well. You know, you need a partner that's going to yeah. be on this journey that you get on with and have a good rapport with. Yeah, it needs to be uh, in both directions, in my opinion. Totally. Yeah. Totally agree with that. Awesome. Like th- this series is all about bite-sized chats. We could speak all day, but I'm going to, I'm going to call it there. And there is lots of takeaways, both practical and sort of emotional that uh, founders listening can take away from this. So Pietro, thank you so much for joining me. And I just also want to say, as Pietro mentioned, he's been on the podcast a few times before. So if you like what he's saying, do go back through the, the back catalog and find the other Pietro episodes. But thank you so much. Awesome, Nick. It was great to be here. Thank you so much, man. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And if you enjoyed it, I'd hugely appreciate it if you can share it on socials or indeed just with your network. If you're feeling extra generous, I'd absolutely love it if you could leave us a review on Spotify, the Play Store or iTunes. That is the only way we get more listeners. So thanks for that. Support for Pitch Deck also comes from Planes Studio. If you've got an idea for a business and want to quickly get a product live, you should check them out. Whether you're a startup or scale-up, they help you take your idea, build a prototype and launch it into market before your competitors do. And they'll also keep learning from your customers to only build the features you need as you grow. We've worked with them at Horseplay Ventures and I can safely say they're some of the smartest product thinkers and builders out there right now. So check out planes.studio.